Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this evening. If you've got your Bibles, um, great. If not, shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, we'll have the notes on the screen behind us. And then again, they're on the app. And so we've got all the, the verse uh, scripture references up there as well. But let's get going. And uh, it's a very, um, very well-known parable, very well-known portion of scripture. Uh, the story of the good Samaritan. And we're going to read verses 25 through 28 in Luke chapter 10. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. I lied. We're reading to verse uh, 30. But he said, uh, desiring to justify himself, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, sorry, we're stopping right there. He said, and who is my neighbor? And I, I lied again. We're reading to verse 29. Man, I'm all over the place. Father, forgive me for I've sinned. Um, so we've got this interaction here between a lawyer and a teacher. You've got this lawyer coming before Jesus. And uh, what is his field of expertise? Is it criminal law? Is it workman's comp law? Is he working on class action lawsuits? He's a lawyer, so he's got to have a field of expertise. What's his, what's his focus? Religious law, yes. Yep, the law of Moses, specifically, right? That he is a lawyer, that he knows the law inside and out. And he asked this question that's pretty basic. Um, and is he, is he asking this question to gain insights? No, he knows that he's a lawyer. I would hope that he would know this really specific question. He's asking in an attempt to trap, to test Jesus. Now, and we see these, these lawyers and these religious leaders do this on another occasion, we see, I mean, a lot of times they ask him questions to try to trap him. Um, we see it in Matthew 22, almost uh, a very similar question. Uh, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. It's like they're trying to figure out a really good question to try to trap him. They get together, they huddle, all right, what are we going to ask? And so they have the lawyer ask him, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great command, or this is a great and first commandment. And the second is like it, right? He doesn't just simply answer, he says one commandment is another. The second's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And this is the answer that the lawyer gives, right? The, the lawyer says, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you're a lawyer. You should know this. How do you read it? And he, he reads back basically these two commands. And now Jesus wasn't, um, he didn't study at this like prestigious university, did he? We don't have any record of him going to college. Jesus goes away and joins a fraternity and comes back with a doctorate in religious studies. Um, we don't have any record of him studying under some acclaimed rabbi. But there was something about him that he taught with a different authority and a different power. Uh, we read in Matthew 7, as he has wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. 
that this was a man who was teaching with a different level of power, a different level of authority. And, and the, the scribes and the other teachers, they would quote other theologians, if you will, at the time, other teachers to try to build up credibility for themselves. They would be like, well, so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says that. And Jesus wouldn't say that. He, he was his own authority. He didn't need to quote other people because he had the authority in and of himself. And, and so the major, a big issue that these religious leaders had with Jesus was that they, they were like, where does he get off? Where does he think he, who does he think he is being able to say such things like this? And so they would always try to challenge him, um, to attack him. And time and time again, he, he silences them, he condemns them, he criticizes them. And eventually they give up trying to trap him and they crucify him. They're like, well, if we can't get him to condemn himself, we're just going to kill him. Um, and so they're trying here in this instance to test him. All right, you're such a great and wise teacher. Watch this. How do I inherit eternal life? And this is, what, this is a question that the lawyer asks, that the lawyer misses it. Because this question is the most important question anyone could ever ask. How do I inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? That is the most, the essential question that anyone ever ask. And you see this happen a few times in the New Testament, where people ask this question. Um, we see Nicodemus having a conversation with some similar questions to Jesus. How, how do I be born again? And he's having this back and forth. You see in Luke 3, where these, these crowds are talking to John the Baptist, and they, and they say, what shall we do? Where the crowds are asking him, what shall we do? The tax collectors ask him, what shall we do? You see the, the soldiers ask him, what shall we do? After he's told them they need to repent. Okay, what do we do? And he, and he gives them this. You have the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and Luke 18 asking Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? But I think the, the one that I want to look at real quick is, is the crowds in Acts chapter 2 after Peter has just um, been filled with the Spirit, goes out and proclaims the gospel. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, they say, um, when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do, right? This question is vital. And you've got people asking this question, but it's really with the genuineness that makes all the difference in the world. Um, because Nicodemus comes He's kind of dabbling in Jesus. He knows Jesus is a great teacher. He knows that he has power from God, but he's coming to him at night. And you see Nicodemus eventually come around because later in John, he's one of the men that takes Jesus off of the cross and places him in the tomb. That he's saying, hey, you know what? Enough of this in the shadow stuff. I'm, this is a man that I want to follow. Um, but even in that conversation in John 3, it's not, it's, it's like, I'm almost there. I'm kind of dabbling. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't really want to jump in all the way. You've got the rich young ruler coming and asking this question. When given a response, does he walks away brokenhearted? Why? Because he realizes the cost of following Jesus is too great. That there was, I want to, oh, but once I count the cost, I, yeah, I don't know if I can get on board with that. And then you've got these lawyers who ask this exact same question, but their purpose isn't in really understanding how do I inherit eternal life? It's an attempt to trap Jesus. But you have these crowds in Acts 2. 
And it said when they were presented with the gospel, in essence, when they were presented with the message of what Christ had done and what they had done, that they had been responsible for crucifying Christ, that they were cut to the heart. And I've mentioned this several times in the past few weeks, but this is what the word of God does. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to bone and marrow and exposing us. And this is what happened to the crowds where they were cut, where God had, had exposed their sin, where they had become aware of their sin. And they asked this important question, what must I do to be saved? And, and this response of the, the crowds in Acts 2, it's not a remorse that's built on their own guilt. Um, it's one that, that was initiated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, lost people can be guilty. They can feel bad for what they did. Um, they, can, they can feel, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. But it's not a, a saving remorse. It's not a saving repentance. That work is only done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word power in this verse is this word that, that originates that the English word dynamite. It's this explosive force, this powerful force. And Paul's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, this explosive power to do what? To break our hard hearts and to give us a heart of flesh, one that is aware of who God is and aware of our sin in light of who he is. And that makes us um, come to faith in him. That, that for someone to come to faith in Christ... God has to first do the work in him. Um, John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws me or draw, sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day that no one can come to God. No one can come to faith in God unless God first does the drawing. This is picking drawing water out of a well that he is pulling these lost people to himself, that he is breaking their hearts and exposing them. And then the expression of faith comes. And this is the order of salvation. Right, that it is God doing the work first. And you've got these people asking, What shall I do to be saved? But not all of those who ask this question are genuinely interested in, in, in being saved. Right? Only those who God has, has drawn to himself will be cut, will be broken, um, will be aware that their only hope is found in Jesus. And that's what that's what this lawyer is missing. He's missing the genuineness of this. Because why? Because God hasn't broken his heart yet. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But we've talked about this before, that God is sovereign. And so God is sovereign in salvation, which means he draws those whom he does, and, and he doesn't for those whom he doesn't. And, and, and I don't know why, but Romans, I believe it's Romans 9 says, who are we but, but clay to say to the, to the to potter, why did you make me this way? But we trust that God is sovereign in all that he does and that he is good in all that he does. And so this lawyer is saying, what shall I do to be saved? Um, And I mean, if we want to go into it, Peter says, you need to repent. You need to repent and be baptized. Ephesians 4, chapter 22, or chapter 4, verse 22 through 24 says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That this repentance is despising what we used to do, like despising this evil that we used to live in and wholeheartedly embracing 
the things of Christ. That anything less than this is not true conversion. You know, that, that, that we have to understand that this repentance is a turning away from the sin, a turning away from this former way of living. Um, and this is the point that the lawyer misses. This is the point that the Pharisees miss. That they weren't even close. They said the right words, but their heart were far from being where they needed to be. Um, and so Jesus, uh, he's being Jesus, so he knows what's going on here. Um, he doesn't answer the question, does he? He says, nope. He says, you're a lawyer, right? How do you interpret the Torah? How do you interpret the law? And the lawyer quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Quotes that. And then he ties on Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus says, bingo, do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll live. You fulfill what the law requires and you will live. Leviticus 18, verse 4 and 5. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rule. If a person does them, he shall live. I am the Lord. Ezekiel 20, 11. I gave them my statutes and made note of them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. You follow the law, you get eternal life right? That's what Jesus is saying. And this is where it goes off the rails for the lawyer. Actually, he probably shouldn't have asked the question in the first place. Um, But it's at this point where Jesus says, you do this and you'll live. If the lawyer were, if he would have swallowed his pride, he would have repented in that moment. Because Jesus said, if you do this, you'll live. The lawyer should have known, I haven't done this. I haven't fulfilled the law. I have fallen grossly short of the law. And that's kind of why I picked that verse that we talked about earlier to talk about, to kind of um, build a little bit more of our understanding of what that means, right? That none of us can fulfill the law. And so the lawyer should have said, I'm sorry, I have, I have failed. What now can I do? I've fallen short. What can I do to truly inherit eternal life? If this would have been his response, Jesus might have said something like, you know, um, Believe in me, and you'll have eternal life. Jesus might have said something like, "Come to me, all you who are labored and heavy, or, or labored and, and heavy burden, and I will give you rest." He might have said something like that, but the lawyer didn't stop there, did he? No, he didn't confess his guilt. He didn't repent. He didn't say, "I've fallen short of what these commandments are." No, it says that in, in an attempt to justify himself, we just read in Galatians three earlier. No one's justified by our own works. So he's trying to justify what he did, right? He's trying to justify his own actions and said, well, who is my neighbor? Let's, let me, let's, let's see who my neighbor is first to make sure that, that I'm still falling in, uh, in line with the law here. So who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to say this. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. 
Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So in this story, you've got, you know, several people mentioned. You've got the man, you've got the robbers, you've got the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, the innkeeper. You've got a group of people, but the focus is on the four. It's on um, the man, right, who's beaten, uh, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. And so um, being attacked on this trip wasn't like a crazy idea. Um, sometimes when Jesus would tell parables, he would give, he would use hyperbole to really drive his point home, which he kind of does here in, in later on. But this isn't the point. You know, he's not like, well, that's a safe trip. No, um, it, it was interesting. I, I was kind of looking into this. Uh, the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho was pretty dangerous um, for a couple of reasons. The terrain was, was really treacherous. You've got about a 3,500 um, foot elevation change from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so you've got, and it's about a 15 mile trip. And so you've got these, these steep drop-offs, you've got these narrow roads, you've got like twists and turns. It's not an easy, easy journey. Um, but also the terrain made it very uh, advantageous for robbers, for people to attack, set up ambush, um, because there was rocks, there were caves they could hide in, you know, hey, we're going to get them at this turn, you know, they're weary from the journey. And it's interesting, in Joshua 18, you're like, why are you going to Joshua 18? In Joshua 18, it's talking about how the land is broken up between the tribes. And in Joshua 18, it's talking about the land that's given to the tribe of Benjamin. And it says, then it bends in a northerly direction, going to Enshemesh, and from there goes to Goliath, uh, which is the opposite ascent of Adumin, um, and then goes down to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Now, that may mean nothing to you guys whatsoever. Um, but we've got a map up here, which it's a little pixelated. Um, but you see Jericho there. See the top, uh, uh, I guess, your right-hand screen, Jericho there in the corner. Jerusalem there, like, angled from it, right? You guys see that, where that is? Okay. Um, so from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's about 15 miles, and it's, it's a steep elevation change. And so you've got this land that Benjamin was, the tribe of Benjamin was given right in the middle of that. You're like, okay, so why did you talk about this? Um, the, the word um, adumin or adomin um, is, is Hebrew and it means red spots. Um, it was often used in a reference to a garment that was dipped in blood. And so it talks about this ascent of adumin, um, which in essence, it's, it's portrayed like this literal picture of like the climb of blood or the journey of, of blood. Like it's, it's a dangerous path. Like even in Joshua 18, it wasn't like some leisure stroll um, up a meadowed hill, but it is a dangerous journey. And so this man falls victim to the dangers. He falls victim to this dangerous road and he's left for dead. He's beaten, he's broken. And, uh, and in the midst of this, the best possible person comes along to help this man. You've got a priest, a professional religious person coming to help this man, right? He, 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 out of obligation to the law, he does what love demands of him. He bends down, he helps this fellow Jewish brother. Wait, that's, hold on. I'm, that's actually not what he did, right? He sees him and he goes to the other side and passes by him. Now, Jesus doesn't elaborate why he did this. Scholars would be like, well, he didn't want to, he thought the man was dead. He didn't want to touch him and become unclean. 
Um, some people thought, think maybe, oh, maybe he was just busy. You know, he had places to be, you know, people to see. Um, but for whatever reason, he didn't go check on him. Oh, man, priest dropping the ball. All right. Well, you've got the next best person. You've got a Levite. Now, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. But, the, but Levites held a, a very special position in, in taking care of the temple and performing these religious duties. And, and, and so this Levite, surely this Levite, this other professional Christian, if you will, this other professional religious person, if you will, is coming to help the aid of this, this man who's beaten and broken. Wait, no, nope, Levite does the same thing. He sees him and goes to the other side of the road. Then Jesus says, a Samaritan was journeying. And you, you feel this tension rise because the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And so they're probably thinking, oh, this Samaritan's going to like spit on him and kick some dust in him as he walks by. Right? He's not just going to walk to the other side. But it says, no. It says the Samaritan sees this man. He doesn't just see him, but he has compassion on him. And I want, I want to stop right here with that idea of having compassion on him because this is such an incredible picture of what God has done for us. Um, Hebrews, or Hebrews, Psalm chapter 78, verses 37 through 38. It says, their heart was not steadfast toward him. Their heart was not angered, angled, not directed towards God. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, who, God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them, he restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. That God was compassionate towards people, even though they were not directed and focused and pointed towards him. That God is compassionate towards us. Man, there's been times where I've seen someone hurting, and, and maybe I hope I'm not the only one that's been guilty of this. They tell you their story and you're like, oh man, I feel your pain, right? You're like, I, I, I sympathize with you. Right, like some sometimes it's it's such a bad situation. Like I can't even imagine what you're going through. Ugh, I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you. My heart goes out to you, but we cross the other side of the street. Right? I'm, I'm sure maybe the, the priest and the Levite saw that guy and they're like, "Oh man, that's rough." Oof. Pray for that guy. They walk to the other side of the streets. But but compassion doesn't just feel it motivates us to go to the issue, go to what's going on. In Matthew, uh, in the book of Matthew, you see a couple of times where Jesus sees the crowd and has compassion on them. He has compassion on them and he does what? He heals the sick. He has compassion on the crowd and he feeds the 4,000. That compassion moves to action. And, and, and the Samaritan looks at him and he has compassion on this man. And because he has compassion on him, he goes to the man and he binds up his wounds. He pours oil and wine, you know, trying to medicate these wounds. He gets off of his horse, his donkey, his camel, whatever it is, puts the man up on the animal. He, he leads the animal to the nearest town and drops him at the inn and gives him a, a couple of days wage, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars, not a little bit of money and says, take this tend to this man, give him whatever he needs. And if, if it's not enough, I will pay you back whenever I, I pass back this way. That he, he moves to this. This Samaritan did that? This dirty, despised Samaritan did this? And Jesus ends the story this way. He says, uh, which of these three men proved to be the neighbor? 
The lawyer says, he can't even say the word Samaritan, right? There's no, I'm not going to admit this. I'm just going to say the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Jesus could, uh, Jesus could have skipped this story altogether. And when he said, hey, who is my neighbor? He could have said, every human that you come across is your neighbor, not just your fellow Jewish brothers or the converted Gentiles, um, but everyone. So you treat everyone how you want to be treated. You love everyone as you want to be loved. He could have said that, but he didn't. He tells this story to prove a point. You see, way back in like the 19th century, this German theologian wrote this book called, I think it's What is Christianity? Um, and, and he tries to boil Christianity down to these two basic principles. It's, it's the, father, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Um, this idea that God is the father of all and this idea that we are all brothers and sisters. That's a pretty cool and simplistic way to look at it, isn't it? Um, except that's incorrect on both accounts. Uh, God is the father of his only begotten son, Jesus. Um, Romans 8 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Um, God is only the father of Jesus and those who have been adopted in the family of God. There's not this universal fatherhood. God is the creator of all, but when it comes to God being the father, he's only the father of those who are in the family of God. And by extension, the brother and sisterhood only extends to those who are in the family of God. But not everyone is my brother and sister, but everyone is my neighbor. You see the difference there? That my brother and sister are you guys. It's those who are in the family of God, but everyone is my neighbor. Everyone is my neighbor. And so, so when we read the command that we love your neighbor as yourself, it means that we do what love demands of us. That love is an action. It's a verb that we go and meet that need. That we cross the street. That compassion moves us to action. Um, the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And Jesus is using this parable. Remember last week he said parable is this Greek word that means to throw alongside, that he is throwing alongside this story, alongside these spiritual truths. What are those spiritual truths? It's Matthew 5, 43 and 45. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. What is a spiritual truth? It's Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. What kind of hearts does the Samaritan have? Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive. Jesus is telling them that, hey, everyone is created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And that we are not just encouraged to love our neighbors, but we are commanded to love them. We are commanded to, that even if they don't look like you, even if they're not your accepted idea of who your neighbor is, well, they're not Jewish. They're not my neighbor. Well, they're not, they're not Christian. They're not white. They don't speak English. They don't vote like I do. It doesn't matter that they're your neighbor. And that you do what love demands, no matter who the person is. And this is possible because of the new life that God has started in us, that he has regenerated our hearts. And so that we can do this. Why? Because we're a new creation. And because of that, man, our, our, our call is to live as Christ lived. Our call is to, to behave in a manner that honors God, that we, we do things that please God. We do things that glorify God. 
And we see God doing things a certain way, and we're like, I want to mimic that. I want to chase after that. God had compassion on me when I was a sinner, that he reached out and changed me and brought me to him. Okay, well, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to have compassion on other people. But I'm going to do what love demands, and I'm going to cross the street, and I'm going to give of myself. Not just say, I'll pray for you, but I'm going to act in this way. And that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he's telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening. God, thanking you for your word. God, I pray that as we read your word, God, we don't just read it and, and take note. God, but we read it and apply it and, and make it active and real in our life. God, that we see our neighbors hurting. God, we see our neighbors struggling. God, and if it was within our means to help, God, that we don't just say, have a great day, I'll pray for you. But God, but we do whatever we can to meet this need in such a way that shines light to you and brings glory and honor to you. God, help us. God, convict us when we fall short. God, and change our lives. God, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.